Okay, so now that all the seats are filled, we can start. Uh, welcome to the, tonight's colloquium with Johanna Drucker on designing digital humanities. This is actually a part of a series of workshops and conversations, humanities plus digital conversations, that have been going on for a whole week uh, at MIT, sponsored by CMS, uh, Doc Lab, and, and Hyper Studio. And it's been fantastic to have Johanna here for a whole week and addressing a number of really pertinent issues uh, that occur when we think about what happens when we move digital, uh, when we move the humanities into the digital space. And so throughout this week in, in all these conversations and workshops, uh, we've been addressing a number of questions. You know, one is, for example, what happens when we do as humanists our work in a digital space? What is changing? Uh, are our questions changing? Can we add more questions, new questions? And what are the methods and the values that we need to transfer uh, into the digital realm? Are they changing? Are we gaining new methods and values? Uh, and also, are we just consumers of existing tools that have been developed in other domains? Or do we need to adapt or even create some new tools that really fit our research questions, our scholarship, the interpretive work that we're trying to do in, in this space? Uh, and also, how can we do this kind of interpretive work on large data sets in uh, digital repositories? What do we need to do in order to traverse large data sets to see connections between uh, content items, between data sets, and so on? And even when we think about what happens to visualizations, are visualizations already interpretations? Is the data that is visualized, is that already interpreted? Or does it remain sort of pristine that allows many different questions? So these are all aspects that have to do with visual representation, with scale, with navigation uh, in digital spaces. So all these questions, and it's been really fascinating uh, doing and addressing all these questions throughout the week in, in uh, these different workshop se sessions. So. Um, I think Joanna doesn't really need a lot of introduction, but uh, she is widely known as a theorist in digital humanities, uh, and her research really focuses on digital uh, aesthetics and visual information design. But she's also internationally known as, um, um, for her work in the history of graphic design. She's actually published a book on, on uh, the history of graphic design, which is now in its second edition. Um, and, but she also does work on typography, experimental poetry, and fine art, and she's also a book artist. So it's, she's coming from a lot of different directions, and I think it's also the mix that really uh, helps her rethink and think fresh about humanities in the digital space. So one of her recent books includes uh, Spec Lab, Digital uh, Aesthetics and Speculative Computing, uh, and Graphic Design History, which I just mentioned. And uh, in the fall, uh, from MIT Press, there's a book forthcoming. It's called Digital Underscore Humanities, and that's a collaboratively written work with some folks at, at Harvard, such as uh, Jeffrey Snap and at UCLA and so on. <laughs> um, and she's professor uh, at what? <laughs> she's professor uh, of bibliographical studies in the Department of Information Studies at UCLA. So. Please join me in welcoming Johanna Drucker. Okay. <laughs> Should I turn the lights down? Would that be a thing to do? I'm not sure I know how to. 
Oh, how's that? Better? Yeah, okay. Um, so I thought I would talk a little bit more personally than I have during the rest of the week. And really from the point of view of asking why, as a humanist, did I get interested in digital humanities and why do I remain interested in digital humanities? And I've posed a lot of sort of meta-theoretical issues during the course of the workshop and we began the week with asking really big questions about can the digital transform the humanities and you know other sort of large questions. And so I thought I would turn the telescope around and just talk from a very personal point of view because I'm a humanist and I'm an artist and I'm a writer and I'm not the most technologically sophisticated among um, anybody um, in this room as uh, my friends I've been hanging out with know I'm device challenged. Um, and uh, so, but I remain really interested in the intellectual problems that I've come to be able to formulate differently as a result of this encounter. And I remain convinced that as a humanist, for working for humanists, um, that there's something that we can learn from this encounter that will inform our work going forward and will humanize the digital um, environment. So I thought I would talk about the various projects I've been involved with in terms of design activity, some of my aspirations, and so forth. Um, to begin, however, I'll start in the non-personal way, um, simply to say that we know that the um, digital humanities has been super successful over the last 20 years in developing really interesting repositories and interfaces that deal with humanistic materials. And to do this in ways that are now we take somewhat for granted, but that are still quite remarkable. And the Shakespeare um, Folios project, the Quartos project, is a really interesting project. You go, you see the list of all of the different Quartos, and you can go in and open up these facsimiles, take a look at them, beautiful scale marker down below, and then actually overlay different editions um, in this um, you know, working environment and study all of these, all of the Shakespeare um, quartos that deal with editions of Hamlet. I mean, that we can do this and do it in such a remarkably visual, graphical, tactile way is really exceptional. And it did take humanists. It takes Shakespeare scholars. It took, the, it took an international collaboration. It was a JISC-funded um, project. So it took the aggregation of editions in various repositories. And it took considerable social engineering, and I'm looking at you here, um, considerable social engineering to get curators, librarians, and people who are managers of this cultural property to all agree to do this project together. So again, these kinds of achievements have behind them an elaborate social infrastructure as well as a technological infrastructure, and that's something that we need to keep in mind. Um, other kinds of remarkable projects, again, that are um, developing and growing, a project like POEX, which is the, the work of um, Rui Torres, which is a, um, an incredible archive of visual and concrete poetry that is developed in Portugal, suddenly revealing to us the wealth and breadth of what went on in visual experimental poetry in the 1960s. Rui began this project because he was looking at the anthology of Mary Ellen Salt. Um, should I close the, the outside door? Um, bye. <laughs> That's a thought. Um, 
<laughs> he, was, um, he was looking at the anthology that Mary Ellen Solt put together, um, one of the, the original important visual anthology um, the, uh, anthologies of visual poetry. And there's one, essentially one poem by a Portuguese artist, and it's a spider. And he said, you know, there's more to visual poetry in Portugal in the 1960s than a spider. And um, so this incredible, rich um, archive of materials. And Rui has, um, in addition to uh, putting up facsimiles of the visual works, done reinterpretations in visual form, done video interviews with, uh, with poets, re-recorded sound poetry and sound pieces, as well as putting up videos of performance and so forth. So these incredible archives. A project like this, beautifully designed, it's a labor of love. There's no money in it as we know, okay? And there's really not even that much glory in it. So the, the amount of investment um, in these projects is considerable. Um, we now have also really interesting smart interfaces and ways that um, digital repositories engage with humanistic materials, um, are able to uh, do things that we couldn't have imagined a few years back, and just very simple things like when you go to the um, uh, uh, museum um, I'm going to blank on the title of this museum. It's in Australia. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the browser, as soon as you click on something, brings up all kinds of things that are related. So again, we know that the infrastructures and backgrounds here have to engage humanists, professional librarians, archivists, and so forth to structure the back end so that it works effectively. So we know that humanists are central to this work, but nonetheless, for the most part, I would say, in spite of the examples I've just shown you, most humanists working in academic departments really remain convinced that this is the work of professional librarians and archivists, and it's not really the responsibility of humanists. That humanists have everything to gain by using these materials in various ways, but they don't necessarily see it as their responsibility to engage in the process of design. And I think that's because they don't necessarily see that there's anything to learn from that process that might inform their own work. So that's sort of where I wanted to start from, is talking about why did I get involved in the modeling and making of digital projects. Um, I've talked about some of these projects during the week, so I'm not going to belabor the details of them, but rather try to extract from the projects what were the lessons that I learned and why did I think they were useful. And, uh, and then I'll end my, uh, my remarks with a list of things that I think are essential sort of intellectual skills that are related to technical skills. Um, intellectual ways of thinking um, that come out of my experience with the digital to throw that out to you for consideration and to say what are what is the kind of conceptual intellectual tool set for humanists in working in design in digital environments so it's not really a technical checklist it's a kind of conceptual intellectual checklist um, so we'll see where that goes the first project that I was involved in designing was temporal modeling, a, a system I developed with Bethany Navisky at the University of Virginia. It was designed in response to a project that was presented to us by John Miller of Intel, who had worked with John Maida here at MIT. And they had designed a project called Grand Canyon. And Grand Canyon was an interface for the display of visual, photographic information along timelines that was meant for industry, for personal archives, for whatever, so that you could organize your materials in a graphical display. That doesn't sound so amazing to us, but again, this was the 1990s. It was a long time back that this was 
was designed. So, um, and I looked at that um, interface and being somewhat bratty, I, I hope I've grown out of my brattiness, um, but I was feeling very bratty and I said, well, you know, John Miller. I said, you know, that's all very well and good, but humanists don't think about time that way. We think about time completely differently. It's not linear, it's not homogeneous, and it's not continuous. And that's true in the representation of time in humanistic documents, and it's true in the experience of temporality within lived experience as well. So, um, John Miller, being a, 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 a big-hearted person rather than somebody who was annoyed by my brattiness, said, okay, write me a proposal at the time Intel was giving small research grants. And uh, I wrote a proposal to say, okay, let's see if we can model temporality differently um, in accord with humanistic principles and make a system that would allow us to show not, you know, multilinear, discontinuous, and non-homogeneous temporalities. So that was the challenge that we set ourselves. This was the play space we came up with. But that's not really the interesting part, though it has some interest. Here's where it gets interesting. Um, what was the intellectual process that we had to go through to go from my original bratty remark, my little I know better than you do, um, to something that we could build? Now, how do you begin to analyze temporality? How do you begin to think about temporality in terms that can be analyzed for the purpose of building an environment to model it, to model it as a set of relations? So we had to figure out the research problem first of thinking through how do we inform ourselves about models of time and temporality? How do we translate that then into a set of what are basically conceptual primitives that will give rise to the digital model. What are the conceptual primitives of a system of modeling temporality? The fact that philosophers have pondered this problem for thousands of years should have stopped us from imagining that we could do this. But nonetheless, we went bravely on. Um, we started by looking, these are sort of in reverse order um, from how they're in the, the Intel report, but that's fine. I, I put them in because the, I started with the more familiar. First, we looked at the typology of visual schemata. What are the ways in which we represent temporality in visual ways? Okay, so, you know, we just did our research, some by free association, some by beginning to look into various kinds of representations and archives and so forth. So, you know, that, that made pretty much sense. You know, you can imagine you could get to that list without too much difficulty. The second list is a little bit more esoteric. And here the question was, well, let's see, what are, what are conceptions of temporality across a variety of different humanistic and scientific disciplines? That was more research-oriented. It's like suddenly I found myself, you know, doing real humanistic research. I'm looking at the history of conceptions of temporality across different disciplines, right? Hmm, what is eotemporality? You know, what is biotemporality? What is psychotemporality? Um, what, you know, so uh, prototemporality, discursive temporality. And again, um, and this is something we talked about the other night, you started to look at linguistic um, structures, the, the tense modality people, um, and to, to look at the various um, authorities in these different fields. So our, our sense of temporality began to be much richer, but we still are a long way from conceptual primitives. So if I said to you, okay, you know, 
I'm going to give you 10 minutes <laughs> to come up with a list of conceptual primitives. Oh, okay, I'll give you half an hour. Um, how, would you, how would you begin to break the problem down? How do we begin to think about what are the conceptual primitives that can translate into a graphical system? How are we going to go from that question back to this? Okay, because when you, if you were to spend some time with the play space, you begin to see there are, there are things that have to do with just working in the space, models, views, editing, and helping. But then there are temporal objects and things called inflections. What are the temporal objects? What are the basic temporal objects that you want if you're representing humanistic temporality? So this is basically the list, the nomenclature list of conceptual primitives. Now, conceptual primitives here are not broken down as they were in the next step, which I'm not going to show you, um, where we really try, but, but I'll tell you what it is in a moment. We started here. What, are, what is the list of conceptual primitives? Well, you have time at the top separated by a double line because we were interested in temporality. Remember, time is the, the assumption that there's a given, it's a bucket, it's a container into which you put things. Temporality is always relational. So how are you going to model temporality? So what are the elements? Well, you need an axis, you need points, you need intervals, you have this notion of an event, you have different kinds of metrics, different kinds of ordering, iterations. And one of the things that we really wanted to introduce here was this now slider. The idea of the now slider, now, right? Now is to time as here is to space. I, I mean, I didn't make that up. <laughs> now is to time as here is to space. And so now always indicates a point of view. So within any temporal system, the idea that you would have a point of view from which the temporality was being viewed was, again, a kind of move towards a humanistic individual subjectivity within the modeling of the system. So we went from this then to modeling the system as a set of elements or entities, right? So what are entities? There are things like point, interval, event. So those are entities, right, to... Um, uh, uh, um, the see, entities' um, behaviors. What are the behaviors of those entities in the system? What can an event do, right? What what can a point do? What can an, what what can any of the what are, what are the behaviors inside the system, right? So you have events, you, so you have entities, you have behaviors of the elements, and then you have actions. Actions are what a user can do in the system, because we're building a system for our user to model temporalities. So again, going through that process was one of the most interesting intellectual puzzles I had ever set myself. It's like, oh, this is really fun to do. This is actually really interesting. And we know that if we take any number of, of uh, humanistic activities, modeling narrative. I'm sure you've been through the exercise of modeling narrative. What are the elements of a narrative? Um, game designers do this all the time. What are the elements of events? How do, we, how do we structure them? So the exercise of having to come up with a model, a content model, based on research and analysis that could be used to build a system according to that model and then testing it iteratively through a series of designs was really exciting. It was just, you know, fun. It was challenging. It was interesting. So that's what got me hooked in the beginning. It wasn't just the graphical aspect. It was that intellectual process of model. The next project that we modeled, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of elaborate uh, time detailing this, but the next project that we modeled was the Ivanhoe game, which picked up a lot of the features that were in temporal modeling, and in particular the now slider and so forth. This is the first, um, you know, just a sketched uh, drawing of an interface. Um, but what were we modeling in Ivanhoe? 
we were trying to model a space of interpretation, a space that would show interpretation. So what does that mean? What does it mean to show interpretation? We wanted to create a space in which all reading activity, all annotation activity, all interventions in a text through collaboration and a social space of exchange around that process could be recorded and rendered visible, made apparent. So again, we wanted to show interpretation as a, you know, as a collaborative social behavior. So from this primitive little interface, we went to a final interface. And again, I'm not going to go into detail. This stuff is all written up and, and so forth. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, the final display mode here, it's not the workspace, but it's a display mode that's linked to a back end in which all actions are logged and all, all you know, elements are interrelated. Every text, every version of every text is present in the storage system. And what you can see in this particular display mode is the way in which the aggregate of all actions and interactions with the texts and with and characters and players with each other um, is visualized. So in a sense, it's a it's a, a history, right? It's a it's a picture of that interpretation. So is that really interpretation, or is that just a model of social behavior around acts of interpretation? I would argue that modeling interpretation still needs another level that we haven't gotten to. But nonetheless, it was a really interesting exercise. Um, and again, a kind, of abstract, a kind of abstraction that became tractable through the process of analysis and building. Um, so again, that was really interesting. And that seemed deeply humanistic. And again, I'm not um, in any sense trying to say this is more important than the Shakespeare quartos, but I think the kinds of problems we were setting ourselves were very different in kind from the kinds of problems of repository building, analysis, and so forth. As a humanist, you know, again, not necessarily technologically savvy, to get involved with this kind of analysis was brain candy. It was just brain candy. Okay, so, you know, there, I mean, in the end, you know, that's what it's about, right? So, um, and then um, I took this one step further just in a sketch that, again, unrealized, but, um, you know, a more elaborate working space for doing interpretive work with, um, because the, the workspace of, of Ivanhoe, the display space, didn't allow this kind of gathering of, of, of materials, arranging. I'm, a, I'm really interested in graphical, graphical argument, and so how do I arrange an argument? How do I make an argument? Those of us who used to work on um, uh, light tables, you know, to arrange our slide lectures, um, very aware of graphical argument. Those of us who have real desktops and, and rearrange our papers as we're doing our research, very aware of graphical argument. Um, tactile graphical argument, as a matter of fact. We're really physically engaged in the process of research. So trying to make a space in which that would be possible was one of my goals for imagining um, interpret. So I went on to a number of other um, projects, and I'm just, again going to just say what the lessons are that I learned from these projects in relationship to uh, the goals that I set. Artist Books Online, um, I began around, I, I think, 2003, 2004, because I wanted to build something from the ground up. And I wanted to build something I could build myself. I couldn't build Ivanhoe myself. Um, we had a really good group of developers. Temporal modeling was built in Flash with an excellent Flash developer um, named Jim, Jim Allman. So Bethany and Jim worked quite closely, did a lot of the iterative implementation and development of that project. Ivanhoe, we had um, a, a, a bunch of Java um, uh, programmers. But I wanted to do something that I could actually do directly um, in order to learn these processes. So my skill level being like, you know, way down there, um, it was XML that I could learn. 
And um, so Artist Books Online is built entirely in XML. And so XML Editor, again, if, you're, if you have the obsessive-compulsive advantage, XML Editor is a joy, a joy in your life, okay? It gives you endless satisfaction. It identifies every single flaw in any single line of anything. Thank you. Okay, so, um, so it's great. Um, so Artist Books Online was designed um, with, again, an intellectual purpose in mind. First of all, I wanted to put artist books up online and do it in a way that would serve um, artist books, which need to be seen completely beginning to end. Um, they can't just be uh, shown in a representative way. Um, and this is the, where artist books online currently is. I mean, it was um, freeze-dried um, around 2008, but it was uh, migrated um, like one of those characters in a grade B science fiction film from 1957 that lives in an artificial environment like a saltwater fish in a freshwater tank now at, at UCLA. Um, but it does still exist and, and you can access it and use it. Um, the, uh, and this is um, a page of the, actually the very first book I ever printed, um, which I'll just show as the model. So what I was trying to learn in Artist Books Online and what I was trying to um, extract from a community of other uh, artists and critics in the field of artist books um, was to figure out what is the critical structure that we can put into metadata that will make people think about artist books in an interesting way. So if you know anything about the field of artist books, you know there's a lot of really interesting artist books. And increasingly now, in the last five to ten years, there's starting to be some interesting critical writing. But for a long time, the production talent way outstripped the critical talent. And there really wasn't that much interesting writing about artist books, thinking about them as books, and thinking about the questions that they raised. So I wanted to structure the metadata fields in Artist Books Online so that anybody describing a book had to address issues of how books work as aesthetic objects by making them answer, you know, put information into certain kinds of fields. So it was coercive metadata, right? It was basically, and um, it was an interesting process. Again, the first time I made the metadata scheme in XML, highly intellectualized, very elaborately structured. And then I sat down with a book in front of me and realized there was no way I could reconcile my experience of moving through a book and the description I was being asked by myself to produce. And so that was really useful because intellectually I thought, well, you need to say this and you need to say this. And I had a wonderfully organized intellectual critical structure. It didn't map onto experience. So that mismatch, again, taught me a huge amount. And the compromise um, of Artist Books Online is that it's neither nor at this point. Um, and if I were to go back and redo it so that it could be more user-friendly, because guess who ended up filling in all the metadata on all the books? For, all right, okay. Because, you know, um, it was very difficult to get anybody else to, to do this work. Um, even though we did make it really easy, um, it still wasn't possible. Um, so anyway, um, I'm not going to go into detail about this, but essentially if you look across the top, um, under the home search exhibits intro and so forth, you see that we used um, a basic, um, you know, bibliographic convention of the work edi edition object and images um, in order to structure, again, the kind of larger, uh, you know, bibliographical fields in which the work is described. Um, 
and aside from things like basic publication information and so forth, well, we wanted people to think in terms of aesthetic issues, what kind of movements and subject and themes and content, publication traditions, inspiration, related works, other influences, and so forth. So again, to get people thinking. So that was the, the purpose of the metadata. Um, and uh, you know, here's the, the particular edition. Um, critical analysis, again, all kinds of um, things that we were calling for. Design features in particular, typographic, imagery, graphical, openings. How does an opening work? How does the artist work with that gutter? And again, these are fundamental principles of book design that are integral to the way in which aesthetic artifacts actually function by giving people a sense that this is something you should talk about in this was really the goal. Um, so I, would, I count ABs Online as a kind of success and failure in the sense that, um, uh, you know, it did and didn't. Uh, it's still, amazingly, people use it for teaching. They use it a lot for teaching. And I may revive the project at some point because it would be easy to do now, relatively speaking. Um, but also, again, the principle was that every um, page of the book should be um, scanned so that you could see the entire book and study it in large size um, as well as small size. And the issue here, again, is that the natural unit of the book is the opening. Finding a scanner that you can afford to buy that's bigger than 11 by 14 in order to do the scanning was prohibitive. So, you know, we had the library photograph a lot of the large-scale books, but we just couldn't afford to do it. So, and we weren't going to sit there and patch all these things together in Photoshop. So again, these are things that are, that are compromises that you make, but that are, become intellectual legacy um, that is, has problematic issues in it. Um, again, just to give you a contrast between what, what happens, you, you got a glimpse of the, of the thickness of the metadata here um, by contrast, and, and the availability of the images. By contrast, if you were to go to a fairly standard um, representation of an artist's books catalog, online, and this is at Wisconsin, you get a single image, maybe two, this is one of two images, and the metadata would be fairly standard metadata, um, you know, that, that again conforms to library standards. Nothing wrong with that, and again, librarians are brave souls when it comes to cataloging artist books. Um, they pose all kinds of conundrums and, and so forth, but it doesn't give you that much in terms of thinking about the field. So again, for, from my point of view, coming up with the metadata structure was a really interesting engagement as a humanist critic and artist with the problem of structuring um, the XML document. We did um, document all of this activity. You can view the DTD, for instance, if you're interested. I mean, if you're interested in viewing the DTD, you probably have some psychological disorder, but um, nonetheless, um, I continue to be interested in the DTD, so, um, and in particular in the um, uh, specialized vocabulary, the controlled vocabulary that we developed in order to, do, you know, describe artist books, and I, there's a revived interest in our controlled vocabulary, again, and it's also just, you know, digitally many is such a rapidly moving target that the period in which we developed this project was much harder to build, much harder to share, and now it would be relatively easy to share and um, the community of people interested in it has, has grown. Um, yeah, more nerd, nerd stuff. Um, that should have been taken out. Oh, these were just to show you again contrasts of other um, proprietary collections for, for showing artist books and the, and the limited metadata um, that you get with most of these um, and so forth. Um, 
So I moved on from, I finished Artist Books Online in 2008 and, and left the University of Virginia. And I, I frankly was really tired of writing about artist books and doing ABs Online because I already knew all the books I was writing about and I, I just I wasn't interested. It just wasn't intellectually open-ended enough. Um, there's all kinds of great books out there, but I didn't want to be the person writing about them. Um, and so I wanted another kind of project, a new kind of project that would feel intellectually open-ended. In other words, the, I wasn't learning much in writing about artist books, and I wanted to learn more. And since my passion is the history of writing um, and the history of historiography of the alphabet, a point I'll get into in a moment, um, I got involved in a collaboration with um, Simon Elliott at the University of London and Paul Vetch at King's College to create a virtual museum out of an analog collection of objects that had been put together by a man named Alan Cole, a kind of, you know, obsessive, wonderful collector of material um, implements and objects that look at the history of writing as a material uh, project. So st Roman styluses and parchment. I, I met Alan for lunch in London one day, and, and he said, well, you know, this kind of thing. And he pulls out this, you know, eight-page parchment that he unfolds. He says, yeah, you know, like, here's this letter from Louis the Thirteenth. You know, you can see the seal on it and so forth. I said, Alan, that is so something that does not belong at lunch, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, but it was that. It was that kind of uh, material. Anyway, um, Cole is a very interesting person. The collection was acquired by the Senate House Library at the University of London with the help of Warwick Gould. Um, but the folks in London didn't really have much technical expertise. It was before Paul Vetch was fully involved. And I said, well, I'm moving to UCLA. I think we could help you. We could design the um, infrastructure and help with, with the design of that. The digitization would take place in London. Paul came on board and, and helped us make decisions about building the repository of the collections management side of it in a system called EMU. And we've been working with Omeka to build a pipeline between the two for, for reasons that are interesting but not, not necessarily necessarily intellectually that interesting. It's more about the community of practice. But then we had the problem of how do we design a museum of writing? What's a virtual museum? So again, same kind of process. You start looking at what's out there, the way people work with virtual museums, coming up with a kind of design and so forth, and beginning to play around with this. Now, I'm not so interested in just building a virtual museum. Again, you know, there's plenty of models, the British Museum, you know, the, the, there's good models for how to build a virtual museum. Not any of them fully successful, but all of them, you know, a lot of really good things. I was interested in something else here, and that is that Alan Cole's own system of organizing the inventory of his collection has a very interesting point of view in it. It's his imprint. It's the imprint of the collector. It's an interpretation of the collection according to Alan Cole. Alan also has a prodigious memory. He, he can look down this list and tell you what the object is. He conjures it in mind. He can describe where he got it, from whom, under what circumstances, and what the object is. Now, it doesn't matter how verifiable that information is. What matters is that this is information that I would like to ingest into the Museum of Writing as a separate filter, a separate organizing system in order for that to be preserved. 
that that particular approach to archives, to memory, to museums and collections is something that has largely been filtered out with few exceptions. You know, you have idiosyncratic museums, but so we can afford to have multiple metadata schemes within or, or you know, ways of using metadata to call this kind of structure forward. So that's been the imprint of the collector has been one of the things I've been really interested in. Um, when we started designing the Museum of Writing, we played some of the same games we played in the workshop this week, which is, you know, user studies and use cases. Um, we had a wonderful young designer who worked with us to kind of play storyboards with what would the Museum of Writing look like, how would you work with it, um, what would artifacts look like. We wanted to build in a lot of features that, again, took up the collaborative annotation materials, interpretation, um, publication, you know, reuse, all the things we want to do with repositories, uh, and have it look pretty, frankly, you know, have it kind of look pretty. So we did a bunch of design work here. But again, for me, the interesting issue here is really um, imprint of the collector as a model of interpretation as an organizing scheme within large repositories, that we will replicate this process over and over again. Um, and again, you know, you learn tons. I mean, this is, you know, our workflow, um, you know, sort of analysis. Again, as a humanist, what do I learn from this? I learn a tremendous amount about having to be analytic in breaking down uh, processes that I take for granted into uh, constituent parts that will work for production. So this is an initial workflow diagram, um, and there were more that, that I took out. So the Museum of Writing is ongoing. Um, the digitization's ongoing. The development's ongoing. My, my personal research interest here is not so much in, in uh, is first of all that imprint of the collector, metadata schemes, and so forth. But my personal interest is in alphabet historiography and in the history of the alphabet in terms of how we came to conceptualize what the alphabet is at different, according to different historic epistemes. So, you know, is it, um, you know, a, 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 a sign system that is a cosmological system? Is it the Stokia, you know, of, of, uh, of antiquity? Is it, you know, the, you know, basic fundamentals of the zero and the one in some combinatoric system? Is it the trace of, of ancient Semitic tribes who, who had a camp, you know, nomadic camps and whose imprint in terms of the vocabulary of the names of the letters remains. I mean, what is the alphabet? And it's conceptualized at all these different moments according to different models, depending on what kinds of evidence are being brought into the argument. So there are biblical, there are biblical versions of this. There are versions in antiquity. There are the beginnings of, of archaeological evidence. There's modern scientific evidence, quote unquote. There's linguistic evidence and so forth. Most of the time, if you say I'm interested in the alphabet, people say, which alphabet? Do you mean the Latin alphabet? And then you have to show them that, in fact, there's a single root for um, all alphabets in the world that come out. I mean, it's not quite so linear, but all alphabets in use in, contemporary, in the contemporary world come from a single root. They diffuse, they specialize, and they change, sometimes with radical interventions, but there's only one alphabet. And uh, other than that, there's Chinese characters, Japanese characters, Korean characters. There, there are other character sets, but there's only one alphabet, and it has a single source. So I'm interested in this process of alphabet um, conceptualization. 
And I'm also interested in building a platform that I can use for teaching and pedagogy, as well as for my own research. So we're now working with the Alphabet Books and the Children's Book Collection at the University of California's Special Collections. You can see some of these books in the background. They're fascinating cultural artifacts. So can we build the digital repository that allows students to engage with these materials, write interpretations that are useful um, and contribute to this work? My own work focuses on this particular project, which is Pantographia, um, which contains accurate copies of all the known alphabets of the world, as you can see, together with an English exploration of the peculiar force or power of each letter to which are added specimens of all well-authenticated oral languages forming a comprehensive digest of phonology. And this project was put together by Edmund Fry in 1799. It's a remarkable compendium for many reasons, not least of all because in putting his samples together, he was a type founder, he redrew these, recast them, made these samples to print in this, in this specimen book. He has um, his sources quoted. You can see here Fournier is one of his um, major sources for the Armenian alphabets that he replicates here. But he also, as you see, attributes these. Some authors suppose that this number three, suppose this character was invented by St. Chrysostom, who was, you know, um, uh, banished by the emperor from Constantinople into Armenia where he died. So there's a tremendous amount of cultural information in this particular um, work. I'm particularly interested in these alphabets, the Chaldean alphabets, which unlike the Armenian alphabets and other alphabets in Fry, have no um, corollary in actual use. These are imaginary alphabets. The Armenian alphabets are, are true alphabets. They're in use, they're scripts, there are books printed in them, there are manuscripts written in them, there are inscriptions of all kinds. The Chaldean alphabets do not have antecedents any place in the world. They are graphically transmitted from one textual source to another um, and have to be seen to be copied. So they're quite remarkable things. And I've been tracking the history of these various Chaldean alphabets. There's <coughs> some things in John Mandeville's travels. There's a bunch of things in Cornelius Agrippa and some of the other alchemical texts. I mean, it's just a fun treasure hunt of all kinds. Um, but anyway, uh, the point here is that this brings me back to where I started from in terms of temporal modeling because one of the things I've been interested in extracting from the descriptions that Fry has, 1799, uh, lover of antiquities, but pre-archaeological in terms of his model of history, so alphabet historiography at this point is an interesting cusp moment um, in historical thought, is extracting from this the geographic and the temporal references in order to see what model of temporality and what models of temporality emerge from Fry's work. And so I went through all of the entries and pulled out geographical information and temporal information um, from, you'll see, for instance, at Caddo um, or at Bulantic, the temporal reference for the dispatch of apostolic bulls. Okay, so when is that? Temporal reference in ancient French writings of the 5th century, um, bastard temporal, 14th and 15th century. So there are different kinds of, of references. If you begin to try to work with those to create some kind of a graphical representation, this is very crude, this is very preliminary work, um, what you find is there are different temporalities all at work in 
tries system. There's a kind of biblical, you know, um, temporality. There's a kind of, you know, big picture of all historical time and cosmological senses. There's down at the bottom here, there's calendrical time. There's a kind of highly specific calendrical time. So again, what's interesting to me as a humanist is that by formalizing these re-representations in some kind of a schema, right, I can come up with an XML markup schema to actually mark up Fry and generate re-representations and begin to think about historical understanding in a formalized way in a very different, a really different um, sense. So completely interesting to me as analytic tools. So as far as I'm concerned, these tools are hu- analytic critical tools for humanists. I'm going to finish by just talking for a couple minutes about some private, pro- uh, more personal projects, creative projects, because I am interested in, in, in using digital um, environments for creative work. I haven't anywhere near the level of um, uh, facility uh, of people sitting in the back corner of this room over here, so I'm almost em- embarrassed to, to show these things. Um, but I'll show them anyway, because again, I think it's interesting to think about um, limits of one's knowledge and, and challenges. So I've been working on a project that's a database memoir about all the books I ever wanted to write or wrote and never published. And, you know, there's a lot of them. So, you know, it's just one of those things. I've got boxes and boxes of books I've written and never published. It's a little scary to think about, and, um, but I think most writers do. And um, so I'm interested in playing with this material as an archive to think about what are the ways in which I can um, animate this archive? What does it mean to animate an archive? So I'm interested, for instance, in how you can have, and again, it's just faceted searching and faceted browsing. How can you have multiple tables of contents? How can we take conventions out of bibliographical um, graphics and organization and use the capabilities specific to the digital environment to transform bibliographical conventions? Not start anew, but use them. So a table of contents, we know what that is. So you could have one table of contents that's organized by period and type, and another table of contents that's organized by place and location. So again, multiple tables of contents. Right? So you're really generating a familiar point of entry. And as you play with this, you might even you know, be able to kind of you know, muck around with this in different kinds of ways, and then come up with things that cross-reference and parallel. So Oh, contents by title and table of contents by date. You know, how do these things um, work across each other? So it begins to be a way for me to play with my own, um, you know, sort of historical material. Um, What kinds of tags, what kinds of, you know, information can I infuse into this archive? So it's a way of writing. And that's the other thing I'm finding interesting. It's like, oh, okay, so I have to write to the requirements of the XML structure in order to actually, um, you know, and and that will be the content that's generated. (coughs) Again, it's a kind of imprint. It's a kind of imprint of the collector author. And, you know, so you have these little, you know, sweet little manuscripts from my um, childhood and, you know, all of these, you know, sort of comments that get generated by me, another author, writing about myself. Wow. Um, And then, you know, imagine sort of um, thematics and topic maps and, you know, whatever else um, you can begin to generate from that material. So here again, the kind of beginning XML list of, of the, uh, the materials involved in the archive is a way to, you know, again, indulge in the obsessive compulsive um, disorder. I'll finish then with a couple of speculative slides. Um, I'm really good at letterpress. I can think in letterpress. This is letterpress. 
anybody who knows letterpress, I made this form. You know, it's, I'm printing a whole book in this form, in this way. So all I have to do is go in the shop, and I pick up the letters, and I put them down, and I arrange them, and I lock them up, and they stay where they, I want them. And I can print, and really, it's like painting in letterpress. So I think, when will I have that kind of fluency in a digital environment? What are the things I want to do that have that kind of fluidity in terms of how I can think? What kind of platform or tools do I need to do that kind of work? So I think, again, I come back to this, which was an early Ivanhoe sketch. I want to be able to arrange things, you know. I don't want to have to tell a system behind the scenes how to arrange everything and then display it and then I have to go back and change the code. I want to be able to arrange things in order to make graphical arguments. And I want to be able to arrange a lot of things, not just graphically in this way, but along as, as we were talking about earlier in the workshop, um, these arrays, these search lines, right? Axonometric space is highly efficient as a display environment. So you can stack lots and lots of things in a very small amount of space and have them be navigable. So perspexival space is not efficient as, an, as, as, as a navigation space, but axonometric space is very um, efficient. I also want to be able to do um, this kind of thing. I want to be able to write diagrammatically in the same way that I can write in my little Filofax, which is that it's a flexible spatial scale. Right? I can start at any scale I want to, and then I can begin to follow the bifurcating lines of my own argument and let them split, let them become multiple. This is, this is like this little tiny baby crude you know, sketch in that direction. But I want to be able to you know, go in and keep changing scale, adding in commentary on commentary on commentary. So I want to be able to arrange things, and I want to be able to write diagrammatically and to reflect on the diagrammatic aspects of graphical um, argument. So those are some of the things that I want to do. The summary slide here at the end then is to say what as a humanist keeps me involved in doing digital projects is the intellectual excitement of learning to think differently about research work, pedagogy, and creative practice. That the discipline of having to engage with the constraints of content modeling, of understanding data structures and doing analysis, thinking through metadata standards and conventions, understanding analytic tools, working with developers. The development piece is really almost never anything that I fully do. Um, But designing interface and thinking in interface terms and thinking about institutional networks, all of that activity is to me the core of where I see the intersection of the intellectual work of the humanist and the design work that we need to do. It's humanistic work. I I just can't say that enough, that this is fundamentally humanistic work. It has to do with intellectual models of thought and and how we perform them and inhabit them and, you know, are transformed ourselves in our own practice as a result. So I'm going to leave this slide up as a kind of um, point of departure for conversation. And I'm, there's much that could be added to it and, and other ways we could think about this. But again, it's just thinking, what are the design skills for humanists that have come out of my experience? This is a kind of preliminary sketch of, of, of the summary of that experience. So I'll use that as a point of departure and turn the lights back on. How's it?
questions, if you could use the microphone. I'll give you a minute to adjust to the light. Yeah. I know you've emphasized throughout the, the importance of the conceptual process, right? Mm -hmm. This is a conceptual challenge first and foremost, and, and yet it's technologically dependent. And I'm interested in that pod to do, and you've given us a bunch of examples, but given how quickly technologies and, and the affordances of technologies are changing, how do you, how do you in, engage with that? How does your conceptualization process uh, embrace new technological possibilities? Sure. Um, well, you know, certain things change and some things are actually remarkably stable um, in my experience. But again, I'd be interested to hear from others. And content modeling doesn't go away. In other words, thinking about what is a content model. So a content model is, okay, if you have to abstract entities, relations, behaviors, and actions to remediate them in digital form, that's the case, um, whether it was 20 years ago or probably 20 years forward, if you're designing something. So I think some of the basic um, intellectual problems that you can only solve by making are generic in that sense, even though the platforms and tools for doing that change. And I think one of the, the problems is that as tools and platforms become more sophisticated, it gets harder to be involved in that basic um, formative activity. So it's like, oh, I'll just do it in Omeka instead of saying, oh, I want to make artist books online from, from the ground up. So I think, um, so some things I think stay the same. I mean, I think that, you know, needing to understand data structures and structured data as a tool of analysis isn't going to go away um, as a basic digital um, skill. We, we, we have to know what structured data is. We have to be able to engage with it. Um, metadata standards aren't going to go away. So I think some of the, I think a lot of the basic principles of how you formalize informal behavior are going to remain with us. And I think that was the mantra of first generation digital humanists was, oh, we have to actually make explicit everything that used to be implicit. And I think that still holds. Um, the ways we can do it are changing, and the tools we have for doing that change. But I don't think the, uh, I'd be interested to hear from, from others about that and what your thoughts are as well. I mean, that would be my gut, that, that's my, my gut feeling about it. Um, I don't know, what does anybody else think about that? I mean, platforms change, and programs change, and applications change. I don't know. Anybody have a thought? Well, maybe looking, you know, at, at your list, I think that the list really suggests, you know, sort of we are involved in the whole process of, of designing, you know, sort of in structuring the, the data, thinking about conceptualizing it, and also in the, in the development. I think what's happening, there are more and more tools around, you know, that we could use. So there's, on the one hand, there's, there's a, a greater tension between the tools that are available which were made for a more uh, general purpose, and not necessarily fitting what we are trying to do. Right. So, you know, how do we deal with that uh, tension, and you know, so that are we limiting then ourselves to what others have produced in right. terms of our scholarship, or are we, you know, become all developers in that sense? Right. Well, and again, you know, I guess I'm a believer that thinking and making are are related to each other. That you that that if I think about digital humanities not as tools for doing things but as tools for thinking, it changes my relationship to them. And so for me, 
the feedback loop on thinking has been just tremendous. You know, it's just like, wow, did I learn to think by, by trying to make? And I think that will also remain the same. And again, even if you start using, you know, tools that are already pre-made, like again, I'll, I'll, I'll invoke Omeka as an example because it's a tool for humanists designed by humanists to be useful to do humanistic things. In other words, build repositories, do interpretive work, and do displays and exhibits online. But there are so many things that you can't do with it that immediately you see how the tool structures your argument rather than your argument structuring the tool. So I think it's a really good example of exactly what you're, what you're sort of pointing to about that relationship, which is, oh, yeah, right, and now, you know, I want to be able to do something else. You know, I want to be able to, you know, sort of lift the trolley off the track and, you know, do some, you know, steer it differently. So it is really in that tension between the two that we start to find out what it is we want to do, but also how we want to think. So it's, it's the, I think it is exactly that, that tension that produces a productive, it produces a productive dialogue. Um, so, and it's not that hard. I mean, I think it used to seem sort of daunting, but when I think that I can take a, a group of undergraduates and in the course of 10 weeks introduce them to basically, you know, all of these, you know, introductory concepts, you know, have them do some structured, do some XML markup, do some structured data, a little bit of data mining, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, it's like, okay, they don't know how to do anything really, but they get the concepts and are ready to go on. They, what they just want is to go on. Um, so, you know, uh, So I guess the thing that I wonder about is um, <coughs> how an ability to uh, prototype or sketch uh, or work uh, fluidly with these um, might uh, might be an important skill. How it might factor into um, the things you've uh, you've described. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, there's somebody you could imagine a documentary filmmaker who knows about uh, montage but doesn't know how to do um, video editing. Uh, and could tell someone, could tell a you know developer right. or, or editor or whatever else to uh, to do work along these lines. Um, actually, it's hard to imagine such a person <laughs> now that I think about it. But because I think I think that that's a skill that, that a person would typically have. Even if they're going to hire an editor to work on their project eventually, they would still be able to use have fluency to use um, uh, uh, existing systems and and do that sort of editing. Um, but it seems like without the ability to do some level of, of programming, whether it's, you know, processing instead of Objective-C, and you know, I mean, so, so some level there, it seems hard for um, a person to, uh, to really work and, and create new concepts because it, there's going to be such time in between articulating something, seeing how it's developed and put together, um, and then looking at the result and then doing another iteration. Um, along those lines, I also worry that a lot of these existing tools that these and metadata standards and, and uh, data structures that are pre-existing don't embody humanistic ideas. And if people don't know how to manipulate those to some extent at a lower level, it's not going to be possible to make um, to bolt these things together and make something humanistic when there's not the ability to intervene, you know, as a programmer at mm -hmm. some level. 
Yeah, well, I don't disagree with you in the least. Um, on the other hand, I would say in my own experience, um, I would ask, you know, what constitutes programming? Um, you know, I would say designing an XML schema and a, building a DTD and working with it isn't strictly speaking programming, but it went a long way towards that in the sense that, you know, we're able to build a content model and then, you know, think about style sheets and XSL and transformations. So, again, it's, it's you know, it's a kind of low level of, of programming, but, you know, so with CSS is a low level of programming. I mean, any any systematic step-by-step -step transformation of, uh, you know, of, of code, of, of data, of digital material is a form of programming. Um, but obviously, the more skills you have, the more depth you have. Um, I guess when I think about temporal modeling, uh, we had a flash programmer we were working with, and he just worked really closely with us. And so he was able to do certain things, but not others. And I was left frustrated by that project because there were things I wanted to do that we didn't do. And the problem there wasn't his skills. It was that we needed a more sophisticated mathematical model if we were going to do, you know, um, non-continuous space just on a basic level. It, it needed more mathematics than a, a coordinate grid, um, and he didn't have it. So we couldn't get there. Um, so, um, you know, with Ivanhoe, again, the programmers we worked with, we worked with so closely that it was, again, a team effort, um, and it worked really well. Um, would it have worked better if we had learned code? I doubt it, because it would have taken me so long to learn code, and I would have learned it so badly that it wouldn't have necessarily have advanced the, the um, project. I think your analogy with the, the video editing is an interesting one to me in my current experience. I'm working on a catalog right now, and um, I'm working with a young designer who's super, super flu uh, fluent in InDesign. Now, I used to be that fluent in Quark, but Quark's not around anymore. So if I want to do things in InDesign, it's so tedious for me. I have to figure out why every action I'm taking is producing a result I wish it hadn't produced, right? <laughs> but I work with Andy, and he sits there, and he's like, you know, listening to the music and, like, bopping along and, you know, doing this and doing that, and it's all happening. So I can communicate layout, graphic, and design principles to him really more effectively um, and work in that partnership than for me to sit down and spend the months of learning InDesign to get that fluent. So I think it really depends on where you, what part of the um, design process you want to be involved in. Because um, I know people who do, like the guys we worked with on Ivanhoe and, and Temporal Modeling who were working with us, couldn't have sat down and broken up the project into conceptual primitives. It just wasn't, it wasn't in their skill set, it wasn't in their interest, and it wasn't something that they wanted to be engaged in. So I guess, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of how you configure the, the partnerships and how well you can create a synthesis in a team to, to, to understand a, a, an exploratory goal when you're doing things that are fairly speculative. Um, so I don't disagree with you, but I guess, you know, the whole code or not to code debate in digital humanities, has, it's just gotten so tedious. It's like, well, just because you can't code doesn't mean you can't think. And, um, and you might disagree with that. But, um, again, I think there's degrees of, of code um, and, and degrees of, of thinking. So um, I guess I'm just not an, I'm not orthodox. But, you know, um, I, I, but I will still grant you that people who can code can do something I can't. That I absolutely agree. Um, and that there's a way of thinking that comes with that 
that also changes the way way you approach problems, and I I think that is true. Um, so you know. Yeah, just to, to chime in. I mean, thinking of this from discussions we've been having recently with the Open Documentary Lab, one of the shifts that we're seeing is, I mean, documentary filmmakers have always worked with teams. They've always worked with people. But their conceptualization process has never been dependent on other people. They've been kind of a, they've had a vision, and they've understood, they, they understand the technology quite well, could have maybe done it alone. Some do. But some will outsource the, the shooting to a cameraman or outsource the editing to a, to a professional editor. But there's a shift now where you really can't, unless you're a crack programmer, you can't even, the conceptualization process has to happen also with someone who, who's a master of the, or, or, or mistress of the, uh, the, uh, the, these technologies. Of the code, yeah. And that's a new, that's a very new stance, that notion of a collective or mm -hmm. collaborative intellectual engagement. And I see that happening here as well. And of all places, the humanities seem the least equipped to think collaboratively. Our colleagues in the sciences yeah. do it without a problem, without a yeah. blink. And we still are wondering whether co-authorship, how to count that on the CV when tenure time comes. Um, and that strikes me as a really important step. I'm, I, I'm not sure if that's what you're calling for here, but it strikes me as really kind of hardwired into this into this shift that's occurring. Yeah, I think those are definitely cultural changes that you know need to come about in terms of thinking about um, you know shared credit and collaborative activity um, and it's shared intellectual credit. Um, you know, somebody doing coding is not not the you know just the sort of blind servant of the person who has the ideas. I, I have a lot of respect for professionalism. You know, there are there are there are things I do really well. And I know I can do them well, and there are things that I know I don't do well, and therefore I'm happy to work with somebody whose professional skills in that area I can respect and, and engage. So again, I think there, there's that as, as well. Knowing how to talk to somebody about what it is you want to have done is important. And again, that's a mutual education process. Um, and um, you know, I, I'll say in the first round of digital humanities, the people who were on the CS side would always trump. You know, it's like people come in and we would say, "Oh, we want to do this, we want to do this, we want to do this," and then the CS people would go, "Oh, but you can't." You know, it's like we make the rules, and what you want to do is not in the rules. And so that seemed very unproductive to me as as a phase as well, right? It's like I felt like saying, "Well, make it do that." You know, like you know, t it's your problem to make it into something that can do this other thing. So, but you know, I, I think there's a lot of generative um, energy to 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 be had in in the exchange um, of moving back and forth across these lines. Um, so. Uh you mentioned a couple models. Either you can do your own coding or you depend on existing programs. There's a third model. Um, I spent some time recently uh, at Google in New York and Cambridge. And it's uh, one thing that came out that's very interesting is that they are looking for humanists and questions that humanists want to have answered. And the particular application that uh, uh, we have been talking about is Ngram which many of you know. Ngram is uh, an application that looks like Google Books, and they've now scanned, according to them, 4% of all the books ever published, and um, so, which is still 96% no, left. But what <laughs> Ngram does is give you uh, word frequency according to one word or two words or three words uh, and according to time. And it turns out it's, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a very interesting article by Steven Pinker et al. in Science from some, 
they're looking for questions so they can fine tune that. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, this is some, something that humanists together can do and go to Google and say, here are the questions we want to have asked. And uh, they might be willing to fine tune that. That's a very powerful uh, computational machine in a way in which it becomes our tool and not just a tool that's out there looking for uh, people and, and, and questions. So yeah, and Google did a, a round of, um, they did a call for, for grant proposals a year, about a year and a half ago from, you know, humanists to think about, well, what, what could you do with Google Books? What kinds of things would you like to build um, on top of, of Google Books? So, um, so that's, you know, so those kinds of partnerships, you know, um, have their possibilities as well. Uh, but I think for, but I do think that you, I mean, going back to, to I think what underlies, um, or at least how I understand what underlies your, your point, is that you can't think those questions from outside some engagement with the technology until you actually do something and begin to make something in some way, you have no idea. And again, I saw this in, an, in another instance recently where a group of graduate students, you know, again, going through a seminar, being given a particular assignment to come up with, you know, digital humanities projects, but they hadn't actually made anything, came up with projects that really were utterly irrelevant both to their own fields and to the digital technology. And, you know, because they were thinking about novelty somehow. It's like, well, I've got to think of something, you know, really innovative. It has to be real, and it's so, it, you know, it was a kind of like major, you know, it was a major misdirect in terms of thinking. So I think that's why I say you have to make things. You have to make something. And even if it's as simple as an XML schema, that already gets you inside of, of certain kinds of problems. Um, you know, just making a classification system, making a nomenclature system, making a thesaurus. Um, these are really good exercises um, that we give to our undergrads. And it, it opens their eyes. It really does um, to all kinds of things. So, so, that, so I think, again, you have to make things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I also agree there's many good ways, including collaboration and looking at uh, particular technical slices of, uh, and engaging in, in, in at the XML level, at the XSL level, and so on. Um, I guess that one of the things that comes to mind, though, related to that is that there's different questions that I might ask about. Let's say I'm interested in um, uh, working with uh, visuality, and uh, which is not my background. Uh, I've collaborated with filmmakers, uh, photographers, and so on, but I, I, don't, I don't have that practice in my background. So what I might do uh, today, myself, would be that I would collaborate with people. Uh, I probably wouldn't decide, okay, I'm going to go back and get, and, you know, I'm going to go to film school. Right. That's, I mean, this is not, not a very realistic option for me at this point. I could try to learn some things. I might, you know, I, right. there's various things. But it, it, that it's a different issue that if I were, uh, if I were working with students who wanted to engage with computation, poetics, and visuality, and so on, I wouldn't advise them to do the same thing. That's I right. I would say, like, here you have the opportunity to... Um, get a grounding in this that's different and engage in, in a different way. And so that's why, to me, it seems like from a, a curricular standpoint, from a standpoint of uh, encouraging uh, people and, and, yeah. and, and building skills for yeah. people who are starting off, that we can yeah. take uh, different approaches. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think, you know, um, having some basic, you know, computer language is essential. 
Um, and uh, if you'd like to recommend what languages those should be, I'd be happy to know what they are. I mean, it seems like PHP is the sort of langu- current language of, of, of web design, but, but um, you know, it'd be interesting to, to think about um, in a basic curriculum, if we were talking about how do we build digital fluency, um, what are the introductions? I mean, do we, you know, what, what, what is the best sort of exposure? I mean, again, if I think about, because I do have a background in things visual, I can tell you what the six things I would teach somebody right away out of the box if I were trying to give somebody some basic drawing skills and or visual critical skills. You know, I know what those are. But visual, visual skills? Well, you would you would give some you would teach somebody um, you know how to how to draw a line so that you can create a sense of volume. You would teach somebody how to control graphite so that you can get tonal value for rendering, right? You would teach somebody how to um, organize patterns and build patterns out of repetitive um, activity. Um, so I mean, you know, I could I could I could tell you, you know, you, you you do exercises that have to do with observation and drawing as well as compositional principles. So you know, there's there there you know, shade and shadow, volume, light. I mean, it's you know, there there aren't that many variables. Um, you know, how to render texture. I mean, if you if you're teaching somebody to draw, there, there aren't, you know, we used to teach, you know, do it all the time. So, um, and then, you know, analytic skills. I mean, it's a series of questions, right? It's like, how is it made? For whom is it made? You know, what, what, what's the, you know, where's the center of focus? You know, how is the light organizing the, the structure? Or what's the, you know, composi- you know the for- what are the formal properties? What are the social conditions? And so forth. So it's like, there, it isn't, you know, it's not that hard to come up with these, these basic frameworks. Um, and again, I think the same, you know, it's not my field, but I know that somebody who knows, um, you know, uh, computer language would say, well, you want to teach them these principles. And the way you want to teach them these principles is through these kinds of exercises. It's not so much what language, but what are the basics that you're trying to communicate, I, I would assume, right? So what's a syntax? What's a grammar? What's an algorithm? What's a, you know, what's a subroutine? What's a loop? I don't, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, one of the I think one of the distinctions is that people um, uh, is that you would probably teach a humanist interested in visuality similarly to the way you teach an artist, and you see, teach a commercial artist mm-hmm. the basics right. the same way that you would teach a fine artist, and you know, right? And uh, and computation, you know, someone who's really interested in, in image manipulation and uh, and and processing images. Uh, might have a very different perspective on computation. Might want to learn about filters and cellular automata, right. you know, and the, the way that Photoshop works, and uh, uh, and and would use different uh, sorts of systems from someone who's uh, actually coming at it from a text processing angle or a statistical. Yeah. Yes, or, or from someone who's who's, yeah. who's looking at it statistically. So right. Um, so there are uh, yeah. there are basics, there are essentials, there are. I mean, I think I think uh, having some awareness of uh, regular expressions, you know, is is going to be that's something humanists of, of various sorts, you know, would would find useful, um, even if text isn't their main uh, source uh-huh. of data. But um, uh, but there are challenges to defining what that uh, what those what those essential elements are. I think, mm-hmm. and I think it's somewhat uh, more complex. Um, of a situation, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, not, not only because not because um, uh, the applications of programming are so much more varied, particularly, but also because uh, it, we know a lot more about drawing. <laughs> We've had a few centuries, you know, yeah. to, to deal with all of these things, and yeah. uh, uh, 
actual yeah. computer programming on general purpose electronic computers has only been around for uh, 65 years or so. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Uh, I've enjoyed hearing you talk about the process of doing digital humanities, and I'm convinced and interested in the interface between the humanistic knowledge and the technology, having to get to know both, how questions on both sides influence the way projects are structured. I wonder if you could talk a little bit in the context of the various kinds of projects that you've done about how thinking about your audience and the reception and the interaction that you will have with people who encounter these projects, are interested, come back to you. H how does that process, thinking about the audience and the interaction after you've reached a certain point of completion, uh, play into some of the dynamics you've been talking about? You know, it, it's, it's a really, really valid question. And, and I'll have to say right from, from the outset that I never thought about it. And, and I think that was, that's characterological on my part. I mean, you know, I could take you back to Dark the Bad Elf and you could start reading and you'd figure out that I never did know, I haven't yet figured out that there might be a reader. Um, but, but in all seriousness, that's my problem, okay? I, I do have a characterological flaw there. Um, but, in, but it's a flaw that unfortunately is shared by the digital humanities community. And when I, and when I got to, the, to UCLA and I'm in an information studies department, one of my super bright, wonderful PhD students, first year, comes in and she sits down and she says, I, I don't know how to ask you this because I, I, I I'm not trying to be confrontational. She said, but do digital humanists ever do user studies? <laughs> and no was the answer. And again, what's interesting about this and, and, and what you're bringing up here that's you know, so important is that digital, humani digital humanities was born out of sort of idiosyncratic circumstances of you know, people who suddenly had equipment dumped on them or, or had an opportunity or had an idea or had a glimmer of something. It wasn't organized as a field. There were no professional standards. They, they didn't they didn't go talk to the librarians about metadata standards. They made them up. They didn't know to talk to HCI people about user studies. They didn't talk to information access and retrieval people about user studies. As the field has come of age, that particular sensitivity has started to come into the design specifications and into the design process. So you're touching on a really important point. And um, again, I think we see the result, we see the effect of that in many large-scale, early-generation digital humanities projects, which is that they're not that usable. They're just not that usable. They, they were mainly interesting to the person who built them more than to anybody who tried to engage with them because they hadn't thought through how will they be used. Um, they were so built from the inside. So it's definitely um, a new phase of digital humanities um, in the sense that people are thinking about user studies and do think about that. So um, again, totally important point. Absolutely essential in the information studies co community. People are just appalled that digital humanists never, never did this. But um, again, I think you know, um, you know, if it's 65 years of, of computational, you know, programming, it's 
really still a very young field, digital humanities. I mean, we can date it from Father Booth if you want to and from linguistics, but that was really analytics. We talk about work that was being done for users to use, repository development and building. It's really more like 20, 25 years. It isn't very long. So there's no excuse for not having done user studies, um, but you know, it, it just didn't happen. And, and for someone of my disposition who seems to live in some very strange universe, all I can say is, you know, um, it, you know there it is. But, but you're completely right, um, that, you, that thinking about user studies in the design process is essential. Um, and now that I'm with a community of, of, of people who work in that way, certainly when we were designing children, ABCs of CBCs, the alphabet collection for children's book collection, you know, I'm working with, in a very different context. So we, we do think about it really differently. Um, so major important issue, huge blind spot in the history of digital humanities, but less now than it was. So it's not just my blind spot. I just happen to exemplify the, the very worst version of that. So, <laughs> you know, I just kind of conjure things and think, oh, I wonder what that would look like, you know. So, um, but... You know, that's, it's, it's not that user-friendly. Um, that's why I'm not Google. <laughs> My fortune and Google's fortune are somewhat different as a result. <laughs> so. I was wondering about the educational side. You might want to address that, or you probably will address that in tomorrow's conversation, uh, Rethinking Humanities Education. So is, is this an outline, you know, how we might want to think about educating students to become digital humanists? Uh, and I know you've gone through this process at right. UCLA, you know, designing Digital Humanities 101 and now 201. So what are the elements that you think are, are absolutely necessary to include? Is that the blueprint for that? Or? Well, this is part of it. Again, these are, I think, some design skills, but design skills don't include critical skills and obviously computational skills. Um, you know, they're hinted at here. But you need those as well. I mean, you need, you need critical skills, right? There's nothing on there that says, you know, learn how to reflect critically on what it is that, you know, how, how communication works. So the kinds of skills that come out of, um, you know, uh, media studies classes and new media um, classes and, frankly, poetics, um, you know, and I think also need to be included here. And I say poetics in the largest sense, but it's a, a kind of informed, um, critical approach to making, right, and to thinking about, you know, how aesthetic communication works. So I think that there are other components of this and then the computational side. But um, so I think there's, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling in a time of reduced resources to think practically about what are the elements that we can ensure that we can put into a curriculum to begin to um, ignite the imagination of students, but also provide for them some of the fundamentals um, that we think are essential for being able to be critically literate, as well as, as we've been saying, all week fluent in this world. I think the other side of this, um, again, thinking, you know, um, about what's kind of, um, you know, um, evident in what Nick is saying, 
is that visual, visual criticality and statistical sophistication are two skills that I think any educated person coming out of um, an undergraduate program needs to have at this point. And you know, not to know anything about statistics um, and, and to work in this world is crazy, right? Because what happens with humanists, because they don't know anything about statistics, is they do quantitative analysis in which they count things up. And it's like, any statistician is going to go, you did what? You counted what? You did it how? So the idea of means, medians, averages, probability, you know, error distributions, any of that kind of stuff is not even there. It's like, oh, I counted things up. Oh, I'm a statistician. It's like, you are so not. Okay. So I think a little bit of statistics would go a long way. And a lot of, and I think, um, you know, visual um, theory and criticality. Because we live in, you know, the, the graphical user interface changed everything. Our behaviors, our tasks, our information seeking, our communications, our private lives, our public lives are lived in a visual mode. Never before in the history of humankind has all communication, all, you know, access to been mediated so graphically as now. And we we just take the graphical user interface as, as a given. So, you know, that took over our lives. So it's not just information visualization that we need to know about. It's the graphical user interface. The screen is our interface to, you know, so much of the world um, at this point that, you know, knowing how graphical user interface works, interface theory, um, and interface understanding from psychological, psychoanalytic, you know, semiotic, critical, media points of view, I think is essential. So I would add in here, this is kind of design skills for, for kind of entry into making, but I'm thinking about teaching. It would also be, you know, vis- visual skills, statistical skills, as well as computation, you know, some at least touch of, of, of all of those things in, in, um, in education. So, so we can design the curriculum tomorrow. That'll be fun. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Hello. Um, one of the things that strikes me about this field is we kind of run into these recursive issues, like what platform do we use to build a platform, or what tools do we use to build a tool, and things like that. Um, and I'm wondering if you can speak about digital humanities projects um, for wide audiences like museums, which are kind of on the forefront of digital archives today, and perhaps design challenges in the curation of that content? Well, you know, I I think about this a fair amount in part because the grad student who's working with me now is really interested in virtual museum design. And, you know, I think we have to learn to write differently than we used to. I think we have to write in modular combinatoric ways. I'm also really interested in natural language processing that can synthesize a kind of middle level out of existing text, which is really anathema to many people. It's like, you mean it's not written by a person? It's synthesized by a machine? I said, yeah, because it's really interesting text um, that comes out of that. So, um, you know, I think, again, we have a long way to go to thinking about enhanced curation and how curation works. So, a bunch of my colleagues work in museum informatics and are interested in, you know, um, crowdsource tagging and folksonomies and, you know, these kinds of um, generated data and metadata that go, you know, that, that help to, to some extent add another layer or sort layer. I'm sort of interested in, 
you know, how we keep those things separate as well from the um, professional um, classification and, and metadata standards. And, you know, what the relationships among these things are. Because folksonomies can also just, you know, be a kind of, you know, group ignorance um, or a kind of celebrity game or something. So, you know, thinking about how, I think we have a, lot, a, a ways to go in thinking about how we're going to aggregate and sort and filter um, uh, information that's, that's um, you know, contributed back into these environments um, as well. So, I, um, you know, uh, you know, the basic problem of, of display, um, of how you sort and organize display, how you create a graphic argument in a visual space. Um, is it flat screen? Is, is the screen just, you know, flatter than the flattest space we've ever inhabited? You know, it's, it's, it's less information rather than more in so many cases. So what are the ways that we want to create, um, you know, um, a kind of choreography of argument through um, relations in collections, exhibits, and so forth? What are different levels of granularity? Um, in argument that can be organized intuitively so that people can move through them. You know, there might be some specific areas that you want to drill into and drill into and drill into, but you want to have your user be able to browse in a way that provides cont continuity if what they want to do is have a fairly passive experience of unfolding information and narration. You know, you don't want your user to have to work too hard if what they want is is to follow a line of thought that's been created for them. So I think the tensions among these different modes of combinatoric, modular, different kinds of granularities, organizing um, discourse to work um, in those particular ways is something that, you know, we've got some, you know, there's, there's some prototyping to do there as well. Um, you know, w w do you have any other thoughts along these lines? I sense you've thought about it, so w what, are your, what are your other thoughts? Yeah. Well, it, to me, it just seems like, um, there, like you're saying, there's, there's sort of this tension between curating something um, yeah. and having like a pure archive or something. So, so I guess an analogy would be um, like Edward Tufty, who, who um, he speaks a lot about like every drop of ink in a graph should be used to convey data. Um, whereas that kind of negates the aesthetics of something. If you're doing a digital exhibit or digital archive, you're designing it, you're creating it, and these are design skills for humanists. So there's sort of like this, this tension here where if it's a research tool or an archival tool, what right, types of considerations right. do you have to take for, for the motives of that? Sure. And, you know, I think we've probably all had the experience of wanting to find materials in a particular area, um, say medieval illuminated manuscripts, and you're teaching the one lesson in the history of the book where you want to show what happens, you know, to, to, you know in, in, in books of hours, and you'd love to be able to have some beautiful 14th century books of hours that you can show, and you start going online to try to find them. Right, and, it, and, and then you either have these random images that come up or you hit, you know, the, the British Library's repository or, or Cambridge University's repository and then you get this long list of titles. And there's no interpretive um, space around it. It's just you go from the front page, you know, the landing page into the repository. And nothing helps you, no, no interpretation guides your use of these materials. 
And there again, I find that you know counterproductive. It's not helpful. What you want is for the archive to have some kind of interpretive frame around it that you could call, and that says, you know, um, you remember the old dichotomous key in biology? If it has two legs, turn to page 72. If it has four legs, turn to page 86. If it has six legs, turn to page 100 and boil some water. Right? It's, you know. So you know, I think you know when we come to these repositories, we want some help in being oriented to how to use them and, and read them. You want some interpretive assistance. Otherwise, it's just overkill. So that um, granularity problem of going from you know, all or nothing, the, la- the landing page to the individual object, um, seems to me to be a huge um, opportunity for design of rhetoric and uh, use of online materials that we have to develop. Uh, there was, a, you know, so much work in building these repositories and to get them to the stage that they're at. But now using them effectively and being able to use them across, you know, in, in different kinds of ways, is the next, um, you know, is, a, is the next challenge. I think. Um, not that problems of repositories are solved, but we do know how to build repositories. We didn't used to know how to. I mean, it's, it, it was, you know, it was a mystery. It was like, how, how do you do this? Right now, now we know how to do that. Um, enough that we can do it repeatedly. Um, so, yeah. So there are lots of reasons that people go in to study these humanities. Would you welcome a world where half of your students are saying they got into the humanities because they love to study data, data mining and network analysis? Yes, I think it would be fabulous, especially if they were doing it from a humanities point of view. In other words, that they knew that understanding certain basic aspects of the legacy of cultural materials or the current condition of, of contemporary life from a, and, and, and culture um, could be understood from a data mining and, and, cultural and a network analysis point of view. Um, you know, it's not that different from close reading. We've always privileged close reading. Close reading is a wonderful skill. Um, data mining is another kind of reading and, and network analysis. So they're all interpretive tools that give us an insight into you know, how aesthetic expressions and cultural artifacts reflect on the condition of being human. So I think it'd be great. Um, I don't want them to give up their allegiance to or interest in things aesthetic and humanistic. In other words, you know, I mean, that's fine too. If what you want to do is be a data miner and you're not really interested in history, but you want to data mine historical documents, but then that's not really being a humanist. I mean, I think you have to care about the humanistic aspect to be a humanist, but again, I'm not interested in drawing hard and fast lines and, and, and um, boundaries. I, I just think that, again, we, we have an intellectual opportunity to have different ways of producing interpretation um, in, in ways that, we, that uh, enhance our capabilities for critical insight, and they don't displace older models of interpretation. They, they augment them. So um, that, that would be my sense. So yeah, um, I, I think it'd be fine if they, you know, and also, you know, we, we want to save the humanities. We really do. Some of us really want the humanities not to vanish um, from the cultural landscape as merely expendable, um, you know, diversionary activity that's, you know, for the leisure class, right? Um, and. Uh, I, I think there's more to the humanities than that. I think aesthetics is a way of knowing that's really different from other forms of knowing. And so I believe in that. 
you know, and, and I want that to be part of the experience of um, the next generation and generations to come. So, um, you know, so I, I, I you know, there, that, that's my stump speech. That, that's what I believe. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Hi. Hello. Thanks. I wanted to ask about uh, sustaining digital projects over many <laughs> generations of administrators or even many decades. Yeah. Uh, what needs to be in place? What tools? What practices before this becomes a standard expectation in the field? Yeah, sustaining digital scholarship, um, you know, it's been a campaign of various fun foundations and funding organizations for good reason. Um, I, again, I think it's a, a maturation process that um, first generation digital projects, people didn't think about that. And, you know, my analogy is always that analogy of, you know, they made it, they loved it, and then they left it at the, you know, door of the nunnery with a little um, note on its pink blanket saying, please adopt me and take me in. And that nunnery was called the library. And um, so there was some idea that once digital projects were built, the library would just take them in. Well, librarians have a lot of orphans and, um, you know, to deal with. So, you know, I think what's changed is uh, what I see, at least um, at UVA, at UCLA, I don't know what it's like in other places, but um, a lot of projects are being built with um, the library as a partner. Um, so that from the beginning there's a sense that the project is built in a way that will uh, match the infrastructure that is being, um, you know, maintained for library purposes as part of the institution's own sense of its continuity. Um, that's not going to answer the entire question. Um, but, uh, you know, there are people in this room who have looked at the way that the electronic literature, um, you know, archives had to be remediated in radical ways in order to be accessible and usable. Um, the iterative quality of digital um, environments is just going to mean that a certain amount of obsolescence will, will come into play. But I think at this stage, if you're starting a project and you want to think about it having longevity, um, is it's important to think in terms of the kind of center of gravity of standards and best practices um, that, again, uh, the people who are building cultural, uh, you know, materials around cultural legacy um, are using. Even there, it keeps changing all the time. I mean, we started Museum of Writing with Emu and Omeka, and by now I'm like, why are we using Omeka? You know, why are we using Emu? Shouldn't we have been using X or Y? So that's just a three-year period. Um, but I think if you build your data in a structured enough way, migrating it to other platforms and environments, um, and if you think about the information architecture in certain ways, then moving the, um, you know, the intellectual content um, into a new uh, delivery system um, is something that can be anticipated at the beginning stages of the design. And again, early stage, a lot of these things were bundled together in ways that make them very difficult to separate um, from moving on. So, um, oh, that's me touching that. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a huge problem, but it's not, I don't think it's an unsolvable problem. Um, it's a problem on which one needs to be informed. You know, it's like, do I care or not care? That's the first decision you have to make. And that's just the same as making a book. You know, you're 18 years old, you're making your first book, you're using, you know, printmaking equipment, and you're spending hours and hours and hours in the letterpress lab. Are you using paper that's going to last? Are you using paper where you say, I don't care, you know? It's like if it lasts three or four years, that's fine, right? So these are decisions that you can make. Um, and you say to your students, you're going to care in 20 years that your book is something that hasn't fallen totally apart. 
And, you know, when you're 18, you, you, you think anything beyond 22 is, you know, a, a horizon that's invisible, you know, that will never arrive, right? It's so, you know, it's the inverse of the logarithmic scale, right? It's like, but, um, but it arrives. 22 comes, you know, and so does, you know, 52 and 72 and 102. So um, I think it's the same with digital projects is you have to make your, your best, most informed decision thinking about, um, you know, what, where's the project going to live? What's the community in which it's being, you know, asked to participate? And what are, you know, what are the design decisions that you make in order to think through that problem? Lots and lots of serious um, professional um, people, again, in the world of information studies and librarianship and archives who think about um, sustainability, data curation, and, 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 and so forth um, all the time. That, that's what they spend their time thinking about. So um, those conversations are really important to have, I think. Um, and I think, you know, some basic manuals of best practices as well. So. Okay, I think it's quarter to seven. Uh, I'd like to thank Johanna. Well, thank you all very much. Time.